Turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll begin in verse 1 here in a few minutes. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 10 tonight. Um, as I said a few minutes ago, uh, there's, there's a great deal here, uh, a great deal of profound truth and beauty of, of expression as Paul reminds us what's in store for us. There's uh, also some, some complexity uh, Paul is engaged in these verses in a little bit of the, the pattern of speech that's not uncommon for him, where he moves back and forth and even changes his expression uh, in subtle ways. Uh, but what he's doing is once again reminding us uh, of what is really true. If you look at the end of chapter 4, he says in verse 18, Uh, As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. As he begins in chapter 5 this evening, he's going to pick up there and begin telling us about some of these eternal, unseen things, in particular our resurrection and the hope of glory. And so uh, there's a great deal of confidence for us available in the text tonight. At the middle of these verses, uh, is at, at, at the center, is Paul's assertion that we are, uh, whether home or away, verse 9, we make it our aim to please him. Uh, remember, he's been telling us about how difficult the Christian life can be, particularly when we are living it obediently, whether it's, it's simply through our pursuit of righteousness uh, or it's, it's through the obedience of evangelism, the obedience of telling others about Christ, there is potentially suffering in the Christian life. That's the norm. God in His grace at certain times and places and in His mercy uh, keeps us from those things, but we are not promised to be kept from them. And throughout history, again, the norm has been that His people are not kept from them. That in fact, the suffering that we experience Uh, Not merely being in Christians and in uh, being Christians and in the world, but being Christians in the world and the suffering that that leads to are not an accident. They're not God ignoring us or ignoring the the circumstances. They are the means that God has ordained by which the word will go out into the world and he will receive thanksgiving and be glorified. And so Paul has been, has been uh, acknowledging very honestly the difficulty, difficulty of this. And in chapter 5, he's going to continue with an honest assessment of, uh, of the difficulty of it, even as he reminds us of the resurrection. And so he's going to tell us again about these unseen eternal things. Let me pray for us, and we'll read the text this evening. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul, who was willing to suffer as an example for us. Uh, and whose words have been recorded by your Spirit and uh, delivered to us through the ages. We thank you, Father, for the truth that is here for us tonight, truth that we would not known had you not told us, because it is indeed unseen, but we know it is no less truth. And so we pray that we would live according to it. Uh, we pray that your Spirit will be at work in the reading and the preaching of your Word tonight. Father, that we would be transformed, prepared for the very resurrection that we read about tonight. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Hear the reading of God's word, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 10. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, 
longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to take a minute before I get into I've only got two points this evening, so uh, don't worry. This is not going to become an extended sermon uh, by the will of God. Um, uh, what I want to do is walk through the text, though, and make sure we, we've understood the flow of Paul's argument. He, he speaks of our bodies as tents. We know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, that is, if we die for the sake of the gospel... If the suffering we experience goes so far that it goes even to death, we have a building from God. That is, our death is not the end. Uh, We have not failed. Uh, We are not ultimately silenced. We have a building from God. The building from God that he's talking about is our glorified body. Uh, we will not be, and, and I don't want to, to go too deep into a well this evening of, of Christian anthropology and talk about the human person, uh, except to say and make sure that you are clear that according to Scripture, the human person is made up of two parts, the soul and the body, and both are us. We are not a soul in a body, and the body is somehow other. We are body and soul. God has made us so. And we will be so for eternity. This is, the, this is where the resurrection comes in, right? If we're not body, if, if we're just soul looking to shed this body, then the resurrection is of no importance. But in fact, God is redeeming not only the soul, but the body as well. And Paul is going to, to give us, in just a few brief verses, a, a sort of master class on this Christian doctrine, because he says, even if this body is destroyed, God has a glorified body for us that will be ours at the resurrection. A house not made with hands. God is the one who makes it. It is eternal in the heavens. Uh, this glorified body is not the next temporary body. He's not talking about a, a, a sort of uh, reincarnation and that don't worry, you'll get another one. And when you wear that one out, you'll get another one. Don't worry, he's got an endless supply. It's not going to be a problem. No, we go from this body into a glorified body in eternity. For in this tent, we groan. Paul, being a, a realist, acknowledges that being here in this body we, we bear a weight, we bear a strain, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. We are looking forward to our glorified bodies. Uh, it's a fairly random thought, but ever since I was a kid, I've wondered, when we get our glorified bodies, will we recognize from that vantage point how much we were suffering here? 
in every respect. When we come to a place where as God has promised in Christ, there will be no more curse and none of the things that go with the curse. No more sickness, no more crying, no more death. When we enter into those glorified bodies, what will we learn about what we were suffering here? For in this tent, he says, we groan longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. Naked in this passage is a reference to death. To be dead, death is by definition, according to God's word, the tearing apart of the body and the soul. It is an unnatural state. It is an undesirable state. And Paul here describes it as a state of being naked. It is, he's using this imagery of nakedness because, of course, he's using clothing here to talk about the bodies, this tent, this clothing. And to be separated from it is to be found naked. But he's also using the imagery of nakedness because nakedness in Jewish tradition, uh, and even going back to the garden, of course, is a reference to our, our being exposed before God for our sin. This is, we, we don't want to be here, for while, he says in verse 4, we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, we don't have a death wish. We would not rather be dead than to be in this tent. That's not sound Christian thinking. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. I don't want you to miss that. What is mortal is something that can die but is alive. Paul says we want what is mortal to be swallowed up by life. What we have now is life, but it's not. It's not life. It is not the eternal, incorruptible life of the glorified man, the glorified woman that God has in store for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Paul is a realist. He says, ah, we, we groan. This life is hard. We suffer. We are exposed and we bear injury and illness and injustice and we groan, but not to the point of rather being dead, rather to the point of being glorified. We are looking forward with hope to that resurrected body. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. And listen, I don't want you to miss that. Paul is going to make a move at the end of our passage this evening that feels a bit like he's giving with one hand and taking with the other. Paul's expression here in verse 5 is intended to, to put a stake in the ground on the promises that are ours from God. This resurrection hope that is ours is a guarantee to those who are in Christ. Paul says in verse 6 then, because of this truth, we are always of good courage. He's going to repeat himself in just another verse. We are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. We don't see the Lord now as we will in glory. Yes, verse 8, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, that is, 
at home with the Lord or away from the body, we make it our aim to please Him. And with that, Paul's argument lands. It's been moving towards this. We make it our aim to please Him. Whether we are alive and burdened, dead and naked, glorified and in our heavenly tent, our eternal home, not made by human hands, regardless of the state we are in, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The all that Paul is making reference to there is Christians. Now that's not to deny that the judgment seat of Christ will include everyone. Believers and unbelievers. But Paul is talking to Christians about their appearance. We all of us, Christians together, must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one, so it's not going to be a mass proclamation, each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. It's a difficult verse there at the end of our passage, verse 10. Uh, Scholars are all over the map trying to understand and explain and figure out what to do with this verse. We're going to come back to it before we're done this evening. I only have two points, and they, they sound contradictory, but they're not, right? First, how we live now does not matter. How we live now does not matter. And the second point is, how we live now matters. Both are true in their separate ways. Let's take a look. How we live now does not matter. The point in Paul taking us through the entire range of possible states of the human person, alive now, dead, alive in eternity, and reminding us that all of us who are in Christ have as our end that eternal, glorified, perfect body forever and fellowship with God in it, is to say to us that with respect to how we live for Christ, we can live with reckless abandon. He's been telling us not to be afraid. Remember, he opened chapter 4. He said, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. He finished chapter 4 by saying it again, verse 16, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. We can live for Christ with reckless abandon. With respect to following Him. With respect to being obedient to Him. With respect to telling others about Him. We can afford to live with reckless abandon and not worry about the consequences. And that's how Paul's living, isn't it? Paul's set that example for us. And of course, Paul ultimately, is following the example of Christ, who in pursuit of righteousness and obedience to the Father, lived with reckless abandon and went all the way to the cross. We have this example in Christ, ultimately, and we have this example in Paul as a a fellow believer. We can live with reckless abandon in the cause of Christ, whether we are in our earthly home, whether we are naked in death or in our eternal home. Paul is careful here, though. It's not as though we ought to be so reckless that we don't care about dying. This is actually a very real tension in the early church. It's a very real tension in the church today in places where your life is on the line if you follow Christ. 
The early church wrestled with this. Some in the early church actually went looking for persecution. And the testimony of the early church is that those usually failed. Their faith failed them in the midst of that persecution. There are others who said we, we flee persecution at all costs. We, we always run. We always hide. They too, according to the testimony of history, quite often failed. We have this, uh, this wonderful writing from the early church fathers, the martyrdom of Polycarp, it's called, where Polycarp, the, the entire writing, the martyrdom of Polycarp, comes to us because it is the early church's uh, best example, a morality tale, if you will, about what it looks like to suffer for Christ because they come to arrest Polycarp and his friends, whisk him out the back door and hide him in another home. But the authorities find him and they whisk him out the back door and hide him in another home and the authorities find him and Polycarp says, okay, it's enough, brothers. The Lord has ordained that I will suffer. He didn't go looking for it. He had an appropriate respect for life and a desire to continue to live in this life and minister uh, in this life. But when it came and there was no avoiding it, he accepted it. And of course, he goes on to be a bold witness to the gospel in the, uh, the stadium there. We can live with reckless abandon, brothers and sisters. Uh, and, and we, of all people, in all times and all places, face the least threat of any Christians who have ever lived. It, it, it almost feels a little silly to stand up here and talk about how we can live with reckless abandon because there's virtually nothing at stake for us in this country and in this century. We stand at worse to lose some friends Perhaps, as we've seen in recent years, maybe we stand to lose a business, a livelihood. It's not something to, to ignore or disregard, but in the history of the church and the way the church has suffered, it is such a light affliction. We just have no excuse for not living with reckless abandon for Christ. Second this evening... How we live now does matter. This is the difficulty that, that we come to at the end of our passage. Paul has given us this, this beautiful expression of the, the confidence we have in the glorified end towards which God is moving us. The eternal life that will be ours together with Christ forever. An, an eternal life with Christ that cannot be taken from us. In, in what is a, a, a fantastic irony. The worst they can do to us is kill us, and killing us immediately translates us into the presence of our Savior. We are an army that cannot be defeated. And so Paul is encouraging us to this. We are always of good courage. But with respect to how we pursue these things, what we do with our time, he does remind us, there's, there's on the backside of the statement that we make it our aim to please Him, He reminds us that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, I, I don't do this lightly, I try not to do it often, uh, but I think the ESV has, has made some translation decisions in these last, really this last verse 10, uh, two decisions that I, I'm 
confused by, and I'm going to correct uh, with great trepidation, but you should write in pencil in your Bible always anyways. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Appear there ought to be translated, we must all be revealed. We must all be revealed before the judgment seat of Christ. The second is the translation of the word, the last word in the ESV here, evil. It's an overstrong translation. The word here is not the word that's normally translated evil. The word that is translated evil here really means worthless. It means weak. Uh, weak in terms of just not having a great deal of value. It's worthless. It's uh, of no value. And, and I think it's an important recognition for us tonight that, that evil gives the wrong idea here. Paul, again, is talking about Christians, for we, we Christians must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or worthless. Remember, we make it our aim to please him is the, the expression out of which Paul is reminding us of this event. Listen, Nobody in Christ goes to the judgment seat of Christ and comes under the condemnation of Christ. That, that, would, be, that would put Paul completely at contradiction with himself. Paul is holding these things in tension and, uh, or holding them together. He holds these ideas simultaneously. And so we've got to, to come to an understanding of how it is he's doing that. And what we have in Scripture is a fairly consistent testimony, a fairly consistent teaching that what we do now does matter. Paul is telling us we make it our aim to please Him. And like I said with the kids tonight, parents let kids know when they've pleased them and when they haven't, right? There's a day coming in the last day for all of us who are in Christ where we will stand exposed before God, not as those who are under condemnation, but as those who are His children. And we will find out whether or not we have lived our lives in Christ in ways to please God or not. And how? Because I don't think any of us are going to get there and have never pleased Him or have always only ever pleased Him. But listen to me, brothers and sisters, uh, while there's some discussion among scholars with respect to rewards that we will receive in heaven, we can't possibly believe that we will ever actually merit anything before Christ. Because every good thing we do is Christ in us. And so what is it that Paul is talking about here? I think we're going to come to the end and we are going to, to give praise and glory to God when this is done. Because we are going to see the good works we did in Him, and we are going to praise Him for those good works. And we are going to see the ways that we wasted our time, and our money, and our energy, how we were caught up with fear, and indifference, and, and there is going to be, yes, perhaps a shame for those things, but more importantly... They are going to stand in that moment in contrast to God's great grace and mercy and love. And we're going to find ourselves saying, yes, that's, that's what I thought. Yeah. I have no business standing here right now.
but Christ. I don't in any way want to weaken Paul's argument here, and I don't, I don't believe I am. That's not my intention. Even as we know that we have disappointed our parents, we don't worry that they're going to throw us out into the street most of the time. But it grieves us anyways, doesn't it? It grieves us when we disappoint the ones that we love. And there will be a time at the end, perhaps it's the last moment we will ever grieve anything in all eternity, where we will stand before Christ and our works will be known. And perhaps to us more than anyone. I mean, Jesus isn't going to be surprised, right? But in that moment, recognizing that we didn't spend all of our time as we should, we didn't spend all of the resources that God has given us as we should in his service for his kingdom, we will nonetheless have the comfort of knowing that he saved us despite this. We're going to see this in Lot next week in Genesis, right? God rescues Lot and Lot's a scoundrel through the whole story. He, he gets one or two things half-heartedly right, but the rest of the time you find yourself going, God, let him go. Just leave him there, right? <clears throat> but Lot is us. And on that last day, we are going to find out just how gracious and merciful and patient God has been with us. And we will perhaps be grieved for a moment. But we will recognize and give glory to God the grace and mercy He's shown us despite it. Let's pray.